0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Again, you can follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at danproft and at Dan Proft Show parlor. This is uh, Safe Harbor Day. Uh, six days of certification, and the main legal challenge that Trump has left, it would seem to me, Trump world has left, is Pennsylvania Congressman Mike Kelly's challenge to uh, Pennsylvania's legislative action of of expanding mail-in voting in Pennsylvania to anybody who wanted to without reason. That is, uh, briefs are due by 9 a.m. today, per Judge Alito, Justice Alito. Ted Cruz has volunteered to represent and argue the Kelly case if SCOTUS grants cert. That may be uh, the last stand of the Trump campaign. Now, that's not the position of the campaign itself. The legal team, Jenna Ellis, one of his attorneys, on with Charles Payne on Fox Business yesterday, talking about both tracks, the legislative tracks, state legislatures, as well as those pending legal cases.
4: That's what Mayor Giuliani and I have been so focused on is uh, going to the state legislators and telling them that they actually have the constitutionally delegated authority to uh, to make sure that they select their delegates in the manner that does not allow for corruption. And so when all of these rules and laws in their states have been ignored, it's actually their constitutional Mm -hmm. obligation responsibility and exclusive power to make sure that they take back their delegates and they don't allow these false certifications to simply move forward. So we're very confident that at least in right. Georgia and hopefully um, also in Arizona, in uh, Pennsylvania and also in Michigan, that these state legislatures will really take election integrity very seriously. They will uh, reclaim their delegates before the 14th and that they will then uh, do their own election integrity, independent investigation, and then they will certify to the election Electoral College, the delegates right. that actually reflects the will of the people, not these false corrupt results.
3: Yeah, I don't think there's any reason to believe that's going to happen. And since she mentioned Arizona as one of the four states, it may be worth noting. This was she was on Fox Business yesterday. A statement was issued by Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers on Friday saying what uh, Jen Ellis hopes happens in Arizona is not going to happen. The, even if the evidence existed to support that, writes Bowers, the Arizona legislature c- couldn't do what is being asked. Under our state's constitution, the legislature can only act when it is in session, and the legislature could call itself into a special session only with the support of a bipartisan supermajority of its members. That won't materialize, but even if it did, the legislature couldn't provide the recourse the the president's team seeks. Under a law the Republican-led legislature passed just three years ago, the state's electors are required to cast their votes for the candidates who receive the most votes in the official statewide election canvas. So the challenges to Trump's challenges persist. For more on this topic, both the legislative and the legal avenues, pleased to be joined again by our friend Hans von Spakovsky. He is a former DOJ attorney, also a former FEC commissioner, And uh, he's a senior legal fellow for the Heritage Foundation. Hans, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Sure. I appreciate you having me on. Give us uh, you heard sort of my thumbnail sketch of where the election challenges stand for the Trump campaign. Give us your impression and what you think the chances are of uh, anything other than this election being certified for Biden on the 14th.
1: You know, they haven't had much success in the courts. They haven't been able to get judges to rule on their side. Uh, One of the few exceptions is in in Michigan, they got an order to be able to audit some of the uh, voting machines there And in Pennsylvania which is really the big case, they did get a lower court decision in their favor, which was then quickly overruled by the very partisan state Supreme Court, the same one that extended the deadline for the receipt of absentee ballots, Even though they don't really have the power to do that. And of course, that's the case that's before the Supreme Court. But look, you know, they've got a right to pursue these challenges, particularly when you see the testimony in places like uh, Georgia and elsewhere that brought to light all kinds of misconduct and illegal behavior potentially by election officials. But look, it's not just that their campaign would have to win in one state. They would have to win in at least three states, maybe four, depending on which ones they are, to be able to get enough electoral college votes to win. And that seems highly unlikely. So that switches over to the second track they're following, which is trying to get the state legislatures to override what happened in the election because they say the results of the election was compromised. But I don't think a state legislature is going to do that unless they're presented with absolutely overwhelming, undisputable evidence that the election result was stolen or compromised. And so far, while I've seen a lot of misconduct that needs to be investigated and gone after, I haven't really seen that.
3: But this to me is a good example of what um, I Uh, have been complaining about with respect to the Trump legal team almost from the beginning although the campaign bears responsibility for not being as prepared as they could have been with teams in all the places that they were needed. But the lack of focus, this is something I, I know that uh, Secretary of State's office has responded and said this was standard operating procedure. There's nothing to see here. But Molly Hemingway had a good piece on The Federalist over the weekend about yeah. this, that yeah, uh, no, there it. is st- there is still something to see here. And yes, I, we got their response, but that's their party line. You've heard the Trump campaign's party line. Now, let's dig into it and, and get to the truth. And that's exactly what should be done, but, but the campaign is off. Jenna Ellis is still talking about Arizona, which seems to be foreclosed at this point, the legislative path on Fox Business yesterday. Let's focus everybody's attention and ask pertinent questions where we have something substantive like video evidence that needs to be interpreted and questions about that needs to be answered and since you've had the Secretary of State's office in Georgia feel the need to say we reviewed it all we and and there's nothing wrong here they've engaged now don't let them off the hook keep them engaged and let's try and drive to some sort of answer here it seems to me we've seen this over and over and over again rather than starting from their strongest case right away and building out from there they did the spaghetti against a wall and so there's no focus on any one thing and so all you have is sort of theories crisscrossing one another and some people pick up on one theory and other people pick up on another, and you never really get to any tangible answers. It's almost like the Trump legal team as is as uninterested in getting to tangible answers to substantive questions as are the Democrats.
1: Look, I agree with your assessment of it. I think it's more that they've been overwhelmed by how many different problems they've uncovered and you know sometimes when you're flooded with potential evidence it's very hard to concentrate and focus on it and i think that may have been part of the problem look i don't want to be too critical of trump's lawyers but they've been laboring under a real problem which is you know there's been this huge pressure campaign against any and all lawyers all over the country to keep them and prevent them from working on this. Yeah. Yeah. And threatening them with bar actions if they do that. I I have a a personal friend in Pennsylvania who had that happen to her. I mean, a member of Congress is actually telling the Pennsylvania bar that she should be investigated for ethical violations simply for representing the Trump
3: campaign in court.
1: That is so outrageous that that's happening and not much is being said about that.
3: That's a good point you raise, and that is obscene. But this is, again, something that should have been game planned for so you had a legal team ready to go and, and a deep bench with all the, you know, the retired attorneys and so on and so forth who have background in election law like you do, backgrounded as prosecutors and so forth because, you know, frankly, uh, even if they were great lawyers – but uh, you know, frankly, you know, Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis and Rudy Giuliani and a handful of others, it's just not a big enough team to tackle this undertaking.
1: Look, Sidney Powell did a terrific job for General Flynn. In fact, I yes. know her. But she's not an election lawyer. And for this kind of litigation, you need specialists in this area because the election laws are so complicated and hard to understand often, particularly when it
3: comes to contested elections. So if, if it's if it's not salvageable. And and again, I'm, I'm interested to see what the Supreme Court does in the Pennsylvania case, too, because I want these challenges to go forward. There's all kinds of circumstantial evidence that should be explored, and it should be explored even if the election is certified for Biden on the 14th. But as somebody who follows this, you created a database of all these election fraud cases. It's a real thing that they span in the thousands over the last couple of decades. What are a couple of things you would be saying to Republican legislators, since those are the only ones going to be interested at the state level to say you have got to do this in advance of the 2022 and 2024 elections in your state if you don't want to be the next Georgia or Nevada or Arizona?
1: Uh, I would tell them that the deadline for absentee ballot should be election day. And then you don't have any worries about did it get, but did the ballot get voted after election day or not uh, second, if you don't have a voter ID law in your state, you better put one in. And it should be not only for in-person voting, but for absentee balloting. Uh, the other big thing, remember, the, the big thing that's come out of this election is claims that people who no longer live in states like Nevada are still registered and voting there. And the only way to do that, to fix that, is to is for state legislatures to force election officials to clean up voter rolls and start entering into contract agreements with other states to compare their statewide voter registration lists and find people who have uh, moved away but are now registered in more than one state and taking advantage of that to cast more than one ballot.
3: He is Hans von Spakovsky, senior legal fellow for the Heritage Foundation, former FEC commissioner and former attorney with the Department of Justice. Hans, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Sure thing. Thanks for having
0: me. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the show. We move from uh, the election challenges, our discussion with Hans von Spakovsky, to challenges to uh, draconian lockdown policies and uh, base camp for that is Max Public House in Staten Island in the news again, quickly becoming the Green Dragon Tavern of 2020 America. As I mentioned before, another arrest of Danny Presti, the co-owner of Max, this time a little bit stranger, although being arrested for a criminal trespass on your own property is strange enough, but this time involving an alleged assault of police officers. It seems that uh, there were sheriff's police that showed up to arrest Presti again, ostensibly for, again, quote unquote, trespassing on his own property, keeping the business open. But apparently, according to Presti's attorney, Attorney Lou Lou Gellermino, but I think Attorney Lou Suffices, he's a guy that kind of looks like Butterbean. Presty was surprised. So the attorney actually released surveillance video where you see Presty run from off camera to his Jeep, get in, and two guys are chasing him. And then the two guys, one on the side of us car the other in front of his car stop him, but then he continues to sort of slowly plot ahead in his car, including with a sheriff's police officer on his hood. That becomes a bit of a problem, but attorney Lou says it's not what you think. Two big burly officers came out between a parked car from behind him and yelled presty hey presty and started running at him okay he also the report was that uh one of the sheriff's deputies uh, had his legs broken by presty driving the car into him attorney lou says no the deputies do not have broken legs that's an outright lie well okay they either do or they don't so that'll come out in the wash we also heard from presty himself saying he did nothing wrong and he points to the fact that um There was uh, no bail he needed to post to be released, despite the fact that he's charged with assaulting police officers, which I admit is a bit curious in normal times. But in New York City or any big city in America these days, gosh, I don't know. Can you do anything and be detained, anything against a police officer and be detained, even if you're a white guy? When the investigation is complete, you're going to find out that I did nothing wrong. Uh, Cuomo, who otherwise uh, suborns uh, protesters, rioters, attacking police, like all these big uh, blue state governors big blue city mayors he was of course appalled in this instance
0: what signal are you sending when you
1: glamorize that type of behavior yeah that's right run over the
3: police what? Uh, yeah, I don't know that anybody's glamorizing it. They're disputing, I guess, the context of how this went down. The thing I would say, and I will be consistent here, whereas, of course, the left wouldn't. The left will always be antagonistic towards police, except in an instance like this when they want to be more antagonistic towards the guy that the police are after. But here again, compliance prevents violence. My little refrigerator magnet aphorism when it comes to police. Compliance prevents violence. And so. Even if they came up from behind him yelling, Presti, as Attorney Lou says, and you take off. Now, police dispute this, by the way. They say they identify themselves. But set that aside for a second. You take off. You get to your car. They come up on your car, one on the side, one in front. And then on the hood, they appear from the video to be in uniform. At a certain point, it sort of takes the guesswork out of it that these are police officers rather than a couple of guys who are looking to rough you up for whatever reason. So, you know, I'm not sure I I buy that. I'm inclined to give the police the benefit of the doubt here. But, of course, the larger issue is about these acts of civil disobedience, like keeping a business open. Not the only one, but perhaps the most celebrated one. Just one in, in San Francisco. Just a a guy posted pictures of uh, his four-year-old daughter at a playground. He's a lawyer who's now a stay-at-home parent, a guy named Daniel Kotzkin. But I just thought this is sort of everyday acts of civil disobedience. I mean, San Francisco has become a toilet because of London Breed, who's another one of these hypocritical Marxist politicians and has been exposed as a hypocrite like so many other dumb politicians. Rules for thee, not for me, you know. Outdoor playgrounds are closed in San Francisco, Kotzkin tweeted but i am teaching my daughter that orders should not be obeyed at all times this is what we have come to taking my four-year-old to a playground is an act of civil disobedience and um, what's happening in these sewers great cities that have become sewers because of the politicians <laughs> they're doubling down do you see what the la county da did la county da george gasson who is like san francisco da uh, Chasa boden uh like philadelphia da Larry Krasner, like Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox, like Baltimore City Attorney, uh, City State's, you know, City Prosecuting Attorney Marilyn Mosby, all these Soros-funded non-prosecution prosecutors. LA County DA George Gasson has issued a directive to prosecutors that the following misdemeanors will be declined for prostitution with exemptions. But the disposition is no prosecution, trespassing, I I guess unless... You're operating your business in violation of a shutdown order. Then you're trespassing on your property. But if somebody else trans- trespasses your property, no problem. You got it? Disturbing the peace, driving without a license, prostitution, resisting arrest. Unless you're resisting arrest because you're per- being pursued by sheriff's police. I mean, I know this is L.A., but I mean, L.A., New York, the culture is the same. Unless you're resisting arrest, being pursued by police who want to arrest you for trespassing on your own property. You follow? now we won't uh maybe charge bail but we're still going to have you uh, whistled in for hearings on citations or what have you. That's 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 in LA. Uh meanwhile, a, a piece by In City Journal by Erica Sandberg who's a widely published consumer finance reporter based in San Francisco. She points out what a pit it's become. Uh by the numbers, San Francisco PD data year over year Homicide increased by 40 percent, burglary by 45 percent, motor vehicle theft by 33 percent, arson by 33 percent. Victims are left without justice or recourse, she writes. Bowdoin, Jason Bowden, I mentioned, blames a staffing shortage for the problem, but demands for his recall are escalating. She uh, suggests that um, we're about to reach uh, a, a breaking point in some of these big cities, San Francisco included, but not exclusively. Because the same sort of stats that you see in San Francisco are the the violent crime stats in Chicago, in L.A., in New York, in Minneapolis, in Kansas City, in Philadelphia. The same things are happening to those cities. They're being overrun by goons. They're being destroyed. Uh, half the businesses are gone and likely not coming back. D.C., throw D.C. into the mix as well. And so one wonders, uh, as I'll talk about a bit next hour, whether uh, a revolt is in the offing or will it just be the one offs? Will it be the max public houses? Will it be uh, a dad taking his uh, daughter to the playground in violation of a lockdown order in a city just quietly doing so as a an act of uh, education for his kid and you know his own sense of dignity and uh, – sort of demonstration of the power of the individual to stand against the state. I mean, is this going to, to, to gel into something, particularly if uh, these policies are extended, despite vaccines being disseminated and people getting vaccinated, the goalposts being moved again, we're going to see, we're going to see. And I think the reaction we get just as the reaction we've, gotten to the policies that have been pursued over the last nine months will define America for at least another generation. That's how long the tail will be on the policies because we'll be dealing with the after effects of these policies for that long at minimum. This is Dan Brock. How far is heaven and I-
5: My ways of
0: living. How far Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. This is the Dan
3: Proft Show. We're pleased to be joined again by our friend KT McFarlane. KT, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
1: It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You absolutely have the best high-level show
6: of anybody in the country.
3: On uh, the Salem Radio Network. Here we go. Welcome back to the show. We turn our attention to covid uh, On the occasion of uh, 90-year-old Maggie Keenan in Northern Ireland being the first uh, person in the world to get uh, one of the uh, coronavirus vaccines that has come online, at least in the U.K., with prospect that uh, the same could happen in the United States by the weekend, the FDA will finally green light the uh, uh, Moderna and Pfizer vaccines here the way that uh, they're coming online in the U.K., She took the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine and uh, amazing because she did so without, uh, I think, following protocol. The protocol being we have to wait for our betters in public office to go through their performative act of courage like Andrew Cuomo and uh, Warner uh, Warren Wilhelm, the mayor of New York City, have suggested they would publicly take the vaccine to show everybody it's safe as if that's. Really what uh, we troglodytes are waiting on, performative acts of courage from politicians. But that was a subject uh, also of uh, Cuomo's confab with Dr. Tony Fauci yesterday where they had a good old time talking about maybe doing it together. Andrew Cuomo suggesting the same. And offering this comparison, uh,
7: maybe we enlist you. I'll do it with you. We'll do an ad telling New Yorkers it's safe to take the vaccine. To you know, put us together. We're like the uh, modern-day uh, De Niro and Pacino. You can be whichever whichever you want. You can be
5: the De Niro or Pacino. <laughs> Fauci and Cuomo, I'll give you a fun boy. Who do you want to be, De Niro or Pacino? Which one do you want to be? I love (laughs) them
0: both. I love them both. I don't want
5: to insult one or the other. If
0: I say one, I don't want to hurt the feelings of the other. Yeah.
3: Who's the politician? (laughs) This is fun. These guys are real cut-ups. I mean, especially Cuomo. Fauci should maybe uh, resist the temptation to go along with that sort of stoogery be a little bit less buffoonish if he wants to be taken seriously as uh infectious disease expert and the nation's top doc as opposed to just somebody hamming egging it with politicians political hacks really yeah yeah Pacino and De Niro you mean like uh, in the Irishman where uh let's see Cuomo can be De Niro the contract killer and then Fauci can be Pacino the corrupt union boss Yeah, you're right, uh, Governor. That does fit. For more on the topic of all things COVID-related from a medical perspective, as opposed to this uh, vaudeville act that we were witness to yesterday, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Joseph Ladapo, Associate Professor at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine. Dr. Ladapo, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. I mean, just as, uh, I don't know, as an American, what do you think of those sorts of exchanges between politicians and You know, somebody who is supposed to be taken seriously as uh, the public health official, much less a public health official.
1: And as usual, my disclaimer of uh, speaking for myself and not for UCLA. You know, I got to say that I I think one thing that we've been incredibly short on during this pandemic is humor so i don't mind people yeah. uh you know having a good laugh over something i mean it seems you know everything is taken seriously including the guy and gal who are like kind of walking around and nowhere near anyone and being uh, screamed at to wear a mask so uh, i think some humor in this tense time is welcome and uh, i hope we can have more of it
3: well, okay. I mean, you know, fair enough. I'm all for humor. I prefer to be of the humorous variety uh, as opposed to that. But uh, but yeah, okay, everybody's sensibility is a bit different. I, I don't know. I just think that uh, there's a lot of public health professionals, a lot of uh, doctors on TV that I don't know that they're really advancing the cause of the credibility of the medical community or the public health community maybe more specifically with some of their – seeming uh, enjoyment at the politicization of some of the responses to the virus and some of the controversies that still uh, bedevil us.
1: Oh, yeah. No, that's, you know, I hope that um, this notion that this uh, pandemic and the response can ever be separated from politics is just forever buried. People's exhorting that there's no role for politics in pandemic policy you know, they're either there are two varieties. They they either genuinely feel that way and would rather that we approach our policy objectively. Um, and that's that's a variety. And I've been in that camp in the past. I believe you've been in that camp in the past or they're basically trying to strong on you to stop asking questions and stop um, expressing dissent and go along with what they want. Um, so, uh, politicians are, are in that latter, in that in that second category.
3: When we come back with uh, Dr. Joseph Ladapo, we'll have a few more questions, including w- with respect to his piece, his most recent piece in the Wall Street Journal about caution, uh, too much caution killing COVID patients? Question mark. Associate Professor at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine, Dr. Joseph Ladapo. More with him right after this. <laughs>
0: Listen. The more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Prof show.
3: Welcome back to the show, Doctor Elizabeth Rosenthal. She's a former emergency room. Position writing the New York Times. It's time to scare people about COVID. Now is the time to engage in the promotion of fear. Ah, I see. What have we been doing for the last nine months? Apparently not uh, engendering enough fear, according to Dr. Rosenthal. No, she suggests that now is the time for the sort of public advertising campaign, as because we haven't been submitted to enough government propaganda and hashtag campaigns either. Now is the time to do something akin to what was done with the anti-smoking commercials to show the seriously grotesque consequences of being a habitual smoker. Is that a wise use of our time and energy messaging capacity with respect to educating the public and bringing people along sensibly to uh, combat the virus? To help us answer that question, we're pleased to be rejoined by Dr. Joseph Ladapo, Associate Professor at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine. Dr. Ladapo, what do you think about that? A a, a nationwide anti-smoking campaign for COVID, effectively, the scarier the better.
1: (laughs) Well, I think it is completely emblematic of how so many people have managed to lose their way uh, during this pandemic. There has never been anything good that has come out of campaigns of fear. The best things that have ever happened to humanity have not come out, have not happened because people have been motivated by fear, because people have been motivated by love, by hope, you know, and that is the way. The way forward is not a way of fear. So really uh, what those who see more clearly need to do is just completely confront this, you know, at every stage, at every battlefield. It's like so unacceptable.
3: Uh, I wanted to get your reaction to this as well. Speaking of uh, propagating fear, uh, Cornell University, the health department's vaccine requirement, FAQ. Students who identify as black, indigenous, or as a person of color may have personal concerns about fulfilling the compact requirements based on historical injustice and current events. We recognize that due to longstanding systemic racism and health inequities in this country, individuals from some marginalized communities may have concerns about needing to agree to such requirements, including those who've been mistreated uh, by people in power, sometimes for profit or medical gain. The upshot is that um, there's going to be a uh, flu vaccine requirement at Cornell, and ultimately in the direction of COVID, a vaccine requirement, Uh, uh, but uh, persons of color will be exempt for the reasons stated. Does that make sense to you?
1: (laughs) I think you should be asking the people who issued that policy, not me. It it is true. There's no question that, you know, historically, the, the effects of hate and what that has led people to do to other people had profound effects beyond anything that I could imagine and continues to have an effect today. There's no no question about that. There's also, you know, a biological basis with epigenetics um, that really doesn't, you know, there's no sort of politics with that. That's literally what people like to call science. I mean, that literally is science. It's just what we found. Mm -hmm. But the uh, sort of the actions that are sometimes taken to compensate from it, perhaps born out of uh, goodwill, are frequently senseless. I mean they're just not sensible and they even sort of go further to undermine the very thing we should aspire for which is that is to, you know, is to is to, you know, not judge people by their <clears throat> by their appearance. Yes. And you know, and clearly there's judgment there about what people believe or think or should think in that policy that you just raised raised based on their appearance. And that's, you know, that's not the way, that's not the way for it.
3: <laughs> not the way you would do it. Uh, with the, um, I wanted to get to, to your piece in the Wall Street Journal about caution, with to, too much caution with respect to therapeutics. I mean, even though we have these vaccines coming online and they're supposed to be highly effective, that doesn't mean uh, there are still not go- the need for therapeutics and treatments for COVID. And you're suggesting we're being too cautious with uh, some of the available options. Uh, expound on that. Yeah,
1: thanks for Thanks for asking about that. It's it's fortunately gotten a lot of attention, which I'm incredibly grateful for because I think because the message is really important. I mean, ultimately, it almost certainly is a fact that
5: um,
1: that you know at least uh, at least um, you know at least a few of these medications that have evidence for effectiveness when used at home by patients um, in who have COVID nineteen in the prevention of hospitalizations and the prevention of deaths. It's almost certainly a fact that eventually we will have enough data that that these um, that this conclusion will be just will be undeniable will be accepted as as medical fact, and we'll look back, um, or at least some of us will look back and see that there was evidence of a signal early, and we could have used those medications early, but we didn't uh, we didn't even talk we didn't even give patients the choice you know we never discussed the evidence with patients we instead just told them. To go home and wait and hope for the best, which is which is like which is current policy. Like that's that's really that's all that the guidelines so far have to offer. I mean, there is the you know the intravenous um, antibody therapies, but they're essentially unavailable. I mean, there's so there's so little supply, and the logistics of getting someone who is actively infected to receive an IV infusion are you know are are really. Um, are really extraordinary, you know, because of concerns about, you know, them infecting other people. So essentially there's nothing, like nothing right now that, um, that any organizations have given doctors the flexibility to, uh, to discuss as a possible treatment with their patients, even though factually there is evidence for some of these treatments. And, you know, and it's, 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 um, it's, it's really tragic. Um, it's kind of, again, it just, you know, another one to put in the uh, COVID-19 pandemic box of how we have uh, so many physicians um, and so many members of society have uh, lost their ability to be courageous, to, to do what they think is right versus what, you know, what everyone around them or the or public or health officials are saying that they should do. Um, and it, it's it's a tragedy, and, and we'll see, but, but literally, you know, almost certainly, it will be a fact that there are therapies that are available today that could keep people, prevent people from dying tomorrow or a week from now or two weeks from now or a month from now that we are not even discussing with our patients. And it, it's, it, it's, it's almost as close to fact as you
3: can be. When we come back with Dr. Joseph Ladapo, UCLA Scafford School of Medicine, I want to talk about therapeutics that have proven to be effective but are being slow walked. More with Dr. Joseph Ladapo. I know, who I
0: want to take me home. I know, who I want to take me home. I know. Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Before the break, talking to Dr. Joseph Ladapo about his piece in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, you mentioned therapeutics. You, and you mentioned uh, we are being too cautious with some of the therapeutics that are available and show great promise for treating the covid infected can you give us one example i mean because there's been so much discussion of the the various therapeutics i mean most notably hydroxychloroquine but also dexamethasone and remdesivir give us an example of something you're talking about where there's substantial evidence of its uh, therapeutic value uh, but uh, it's being slow walked unnecessarily
1: sure thanks so you mentioned hydroxychloroquine, and there is evidence there. I personally have been persuaded by it, but there's also evidence that, that counters it. And I get that there's uncertainty, and it may never be resolved, which is too bad. But there, there is evidence for that medication. Other medications for which there is lo- growing evidence. So one of them that I would mention is fluvoxamine. Sounds crazy because it's like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. In other words, it's an antidepressant. However, it has affinity for a receptor that, that the virus needs for I believe to enter cells and the randomized trial very well-performed study not a large study but large enough that you can look at it and draw a conclusion a randomized trial was published in the journal of american medical association a few weeks ago that is a leading i mean it's the number in the united states it's the number one or number two medical journal in the country a leading journal in the world that found substantial reductions in hospitalizations for in patients who were randomized to receive this medication not only that but a separate research group from TRANT before the study came out, did a study looking at patients who were taking different types of SSRIs in a large data set and found that patients who were taking SSRIs that were particularly active on this receptor, that is the theorized method mechanism were much less likely to, to become ill from COVID. So a completely separate group, a large database. In addition to that, you may be familiar with this outbreak that occurred in Northern California at a racing kind of track community, and I, I can't remember immediately the name of it. But basically, there's a doctor there. His name is Dr. David Seftel, who was, it was a large, it's been a large outbreak, at least 200 patients, got at least 200 cases of COVID-19. He's treated over hundred patients, I think somewhere around 150 of these patients who've had COVID-19. And basically what they found, he found there, every single patient who received fluvoxamine no hospitalizations. You know, among the patients who did not receive fluvoxamine it mirrored the, the randomized controlled trial. So about 10% of them were hospitalized. And, um, unfortunately, one of those people died. So there's not a ton of evidence, but there's good evidence and it's certainly good enough. Like in any other time, you would discuss this with your patient, but so many doctors and health systems won't even discuss this with their patients. And it's, and it is okay to call that crazy. It is completely nuts. Hmm. It is absolutely, totally crazy to have a potential treatment in front of you. But because you're afraid of stepping out of the, you know, stepping out of line and being called out, uh, you know, by news or or whatever, that you you don't discuss it, it is not completely crazy.
3: He is Dr. Joseph Ladapo, Associate Professor at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine. Dr. Ladapo, thanks as always for being with us. Appreciate your insight. Oh, My pleasure. Thank you.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us, uh, DanProftShow.com. Podcast. You can also get the podcast on Spotify and iTunes, on social media, at Dan, including Parlor, by the way, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. And uh, this occurred end of last week, but since I was uh, off Monday, and thank you to Scott the Cow Guy Shilady, for sitting in for me. Didn't get a chance to comment on it, but I will not pass up an opportunity to uh, highlight whatever the godfather has to say. Of course, I'm talking about the Tea Party godfather, Rick Santelli, CNBC reporter and commentator. In 2009, uh, Rick, this is February of 2009, Rick Santelli was, uh, you know, fired the shot heard around the world, so to speak, and launched the Tea Party movement. He really did. You remember this from the Chicago Board of Trade floor?
8: This is America. How many of you people want to pay for your neighbor's mortgage that has an extra bathroom and can't pay their bills? Raise their hand. How about we all? President Obama you listening?
0: I mean, How about we all stop paying our mortgage? It's a moral hazard. This is like mob rule here. I'm getting scared. I'm glad I'm I'm. Glad I'm a, don't, guys don't get, get scared, Joe. They're backs. already
8: scaring you. You know, Cuba used to have mansions and, and a relatively decent economy. They moved from the individual to the collective. Now they're driving 54 Chevys. Maybe the last great car to come out of Detroit.
3: And uh, so this is February of 2009 during the depths of the Great Recession. When uh, the focus was on the one in eight Americans who were in foreclosure after the housing bubble burst. And Santelli's point was essentially the point I made at the time, too, actually, which is, wait a second, are the seven in eight who are weathering the storm, who budgeted for and budgeted for the expenses they had and save so they could protect against the downside should the economy sour? Are they just spare parts for the one? And that's the question he was asking and the basis for this pronouncement. We're
8: thinking of having a Chicago tea party in July. All you capitalists that want to show up to Lake Michigan, I'm going to start organizing.
5: What are you dumping in, what are you dumping in this time?
3: And uh, that tea party did actually happen, and it was in April. We didn't wait till July. I remember because I was there, April of 2009, in uh, Freedom Plaza, I guess ironically named, considering it's in Chicago, right next to what used to be the... Tribune Tower, at least what used to be where the Tribune was headquartered. The tower's still there. The Tribune employees are not. They had to downsize because, you know, people stop reading left wing propaganda, uh, propagandizing uh, dailies in big cities, particularly as those big cities empty out, which, of course, is what's happening during lockdown policies more pronounced than ever. And so if he could spark a revolt and. 2009, in advance of the 2010 election, can he spark a revolt in 2020, Advance in advance of, say, the 2022 election? Uh, here is Rick Santelli on these lockdown policies and providing a substantive example of the capriciousness of the policies. I, I, he doesn't get it. How can a big box store be OK, but a restaurant is not OK, for example?
8: Yes, no, believe me, I I believe in careful. And when I point out governors cheating, it's not for the hypocrisy which exists. It's the fact that I think many of these governors are intelligent people and they love their families, which they've taken out into restaurants. Therefore, there is actually and should be an ongoing debate as to, you know, why a, a parking lot for a big box store like by my house is jam packed. Not one parking spot open. Why are those people any safer? than a restaurant with plexiglass. I I, I just don't get it. And I think there's a million of these questions that could be asked, and I think it's really sad that when we look at the service sector and all the discussions we've had about job losses, that that particular dynamic isn't studied more, isn't worked more, we don't put more people in a room and try to figure out ways so that these service sector employees and employers could all come back in a safer way, you can't tell me that shutting down, which is the easiest answer, is necessarily the only answer.
3: Mm-hmm. Shutting down, which is the easiest answer, necessarily the only answer. Sure, just shut it down. And you heard uh, Fauci say this uh, yesterday with Cuomo. You know, you need to subsidize. You shut them down and you subsidize them. Garcetti in L.A. has got an $800 one-time payment to restaurant workers so long as their hours were cut by at least 50% and they can attribute it to uh, COVID-related closures and so on and so forth, $800. You just shut everything down. I mean, you don't need a private economy. You just run everything to the government. Government will pay for it. No problem. You can't tell me that that is the only answer just because it's the easiest answer. Well, that's what Rick Santelli said. And uh, he was met with the insufferable prig Andrew Ross Sorkin back at the desk in New York, who uh, sought to tell Rick Santelli just exactly that. Actually, Rick,
5: I just I, I just as a, as a as a public health and public service announcement uh, for the audience, the difference wait, between wait, a big of all, box retailer. Who is this? Hold on. The difference between <clears throat> it's oh, Andrew, who else? the difference <laughs> who <else>? the difference <laughs> well, between who a who big That's box retailer. Of course, it's Andrew Ross. Hold on. The difference between a big box retailer. And a restaurant, or frankly, even a a church, are so different. It's unbelievable. Going I into a big box retailer, I disagree. You're wear- I disagree. You're wearing a You can a mask. have your thoughts, and I you're can have mine. You're required to wear a mask. I disagree. I, it's science. I'm sorry. It's, it's science. Sounds. If it's you're wearing not a mask, science. it's a different story.
8: 500 people in a Lows aren't any safer than 150 people in a restaurant that holds 600. I don't believe it. Sorry don't believe okay. it and i you, live in an area where there's a lot of restaurants that have fought back and they don't have any problems and they're open
5: okay you, you don't have to believe it but let me just say this you're doing a disservice to I the won't. viewer because the viewers need to you understand are, doing it. A disservice we, we are to adding, the viewer you are you are i, I i'm sorry i'm sorry if, 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 if i i would like to keep our viewers as healthy as humanly possible the idea of packing people into yeah. restaurants. I think our viewers are smart enough to make b- part of those Best decisions on their own. I don't think that I'm much smarter than all the viewers like some
8: people do.
3: Yeah, well, not to mention any sanctimonious D-bag in particular, Andrew ross Uh Steve Leisman uh, back on the desk tried to get into the act, too, with about the same quality of argument that Andrew ross made, which is what? Basically, come on, man, is the argument. It's science. The difference between a big box store and a restaurant is unbelievable. What does that mean? What do you mean it's unbelievable? It's believable. Explain it. If it's so stark, it's so obvious. What's the difference in the two scenarios, the two examples that Santelli provided, such that uh, it makes sense to allow one to open and the other, one, and 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 not the other? And here's uh, Leisman, Leisman doing the same thing. Well, how's
2: that working out for you, Rick? How's it all working out for you? I mean, look at the numbers, Rick. It's working out I, fine. I, 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 working out I think, fine, I think Steve the numbers, Rick, fine. the lie. Rick, Rick, the numbers show that I the idea of it's it a horrible not thing all that well. And
8: people are getting sick and dying. It's I not understand all that well, Rick. I just think the way think, we deal I think with if we it isn't the rest of the show. optimal.
5: Talk.
3: It's not working out that well? Uh, what are you talking about, Steve? And uh, look at the numbers. Please, Steve, the floor is yours. What numbers? Lay out the numbers for me. Provide all the context. Break it down for me, Steve. Can I mean, you hear the two arguments from these guys? Andrew Ross the Steve Leesman guy? It's science. That's the full extent of his contention. Look at the numbers. I'm looking at the numbers. What, what should I take away from the numbers? It's not working. What's not working? Is Rick Santelli's policy? Is his policy suggestion? And by the way, it's a suggestion that we continue this conversation, that you have to look at things and constantly reexamine them from different angles. It can't just be this one size fits all lockdown whack-a-mole because that's what's not working. But whose policies are being pursued? Rick Santelli's? He's complaining about the arbitrariness. Meanwhile, his uh, detractors there on CNBC are just repeating whatever the lockdown and bus politicians say. Whatever they say, it goes. So it's lockdown. Okay, they the the left politician said lockdown, so that's what's smart. That's science. Look at the numbers. They say we can phase in a reopening. Okay, the left politicians say we can phase in a reopening, so that's science. Look at the numbers. Oh, they say lockdown again. Okay, it's lockdown again. Why? Because the politician said lockdown, so that's science, and that's where the numbers are. Look at the numbers, Rick. You look at the numbers, Steve. Your politicians, the politicians to which to, to whom you clearly ally. And their policies have us in the same position in December that we were in in April. Is that enough of a probationary period for your approach, Steve? The only difference between then and now is the few experts actually in this space, the few problem solvers actually in this space. I'm not talking about politicians, and I'm certainly not talking about guys with a BA in communications like Andrew Ross Sorkin, the good doctor, the medical professionals actually treating patients, the drug companies. With uh, charges of researchers developing, uh, well, therapeutics as well as obviously vaccines, they're the ones who've made the game change by improving the uh, mortality rate by meaning declining, you know, reducing the mortality rate over the last nine months, while the politicians have been had us on this merry-go-round of lockdown, open, lockdown, open. And then the big government press corps, as exemplified by Sorkin and Leisman, just rinse and repeat whatever some politician says without regard to any science or data, because all they have to do is repeat the words science and data. I hope the godfather, his rant against Sorkin and Leisman, I hope it produces the same result in 2020. It did in 2009, I'll tell you that. This is Dan Frag.
0: and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
3: welcome back to the dan proft show over the weekend the chicago teachers union tweeted out that uh, reopening schools is rooted in racism and bigotry and misogyny they're protesting the reopening of chicago public schools let me just uh, put this question to people. Would you choose? I'm talking about parents of CTU students. Would you choose to send your child to a CTU school? And I mean CTU, not CPS because it's the Chicago Teachers Union right. school system, not the Chicago Public School system. Would you choose to send your kid to a CTU school if expense and choice was not not an option was no obstacle? If you had unlimited funds and unlimited choices, Would you send your kid to a Chicago Teachers Union school? Because if you answer yes to that question, then you are answering yes to child abuse as far as I'm concerned. The Chicago Teachers Union business is educating children in the same way that Cosa Nostra's was the importing and exporting of olive oil. That is a front for what they actually do when they say it's for the children. As you're seeing play out in real time with their protesting reopening the schools despite the scientific consensus that the kids should be in school. What should be – rather than trying – I mean, and this is, again, you should be rallying for the, cl- the schools to stay closed, not for the schools to open in Chicago. You should be rallying for them to stay closed and, say, liquidate the $8 billion budget and distribute it in the form of opportunity scholarships to every CPS family whose kid qualifies for a free or reduced school lunch. That's 90 percent of CPS students. Start there and then work backward if you have excess cash to get the rest. And if uh, there are schools that parents would choose to resend their kids to that are public schools in Chicago, then God bless them, they can open their doors because they can survive based on whatever their model is because parents are choosing to do so. The rest, the, uh, the point here is a thousand flowers bloom, so 350,000 kids can blossom because I thought that was the point of these systems. In Montgomery County, Maryland, our friend Jim Bovard writing about this at American Institute for Economic Research where he lives, Montgomery County, Maryland. December 3rd County Board of Education meeting the the County Board of Education reporting this 500 percent increase in the number of black junior high school students failing math 600 percent increase in Hispanic students failing the percentage of black elementary school students failing English increased more than 350 percent the percentage of Hispanic students failing increased more than 500 percent but these teachers unions these shutdown artists they're all about opportunity for people of color and children of color is that right As Bovard writes, shutting down public schools has done more harm to black students than anything since the end of local school segregation in 1961. And uh, based on the numbers, it's hard to argue with them. And this was with respect to government school systems that weren't exactly knocking it out of the park beforehand. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Ian Rowe, who knows something about K-12 education. He ran successful charter schools in tough neighborhoods in New York City, public prep schools. He is a, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, visiting senior fellow at uh, 1776 Unites, and he's got a piece in the USA Today about this topic. Ian, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's kind of crazy what's going on in Chicago,
3: like uh, in much of the country. Yeah, it is kind of crazy. And, and so there's a, a remedy that the left has come up with for the, uh, the, the uh, affliction that they've unleashed – and that's uh, perhaps best exemplified in the San Diego School District, which we've spoken about and you wrote about. Well, that's no problem. If uh, we see these huge spikes in black and Latino students failing, then we just have to equalize that and we have to try and get as many white kids to fail to, as, to, to, as black and Latino kids to level it out.
2: Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, in San Diego Unified, they identified that 20% of black kids were receiving a D or an F grade, and uh, they recognized that 7% of white kids were failing with the same grades. But what's interesting about that, that means that 80% of black kids were passing, so what were the ingredients? Was it that they were, they were studying harder? Were they getting their homework in on time? But rather than look at that, the district said, no, let's look at the disparity between the number of black kids failing and the number of white kids, and that 13 percentage point racial disparity they decided must be a function of systemic racism and as a result the entire school system has to become an anti-racist district so one of their first major steps was to say let's just eliminate the need to hand in homework on time in in the name of anti-racism so just think about that for a sec Wait. So you're saying it's racist to expect homework to be done on time? How how is that helping children? And one of the, the interesting things that, about this is that the the local NBC news affiliate uh, interviewed a white student, uh, a student who's actually on the San Diego Unified Board, who voted unanimously to eliminate the need to submit homework on time. And they asked him how did he feel about this, and he said he was so excited these changes so earnest this white student and he said that you know because it's not fair to hold kids to a standard that they're not able to meet well just think about the real world how often can you go to your employer and say oh yeah yeah I'll I'll get that I'll get whatever the deliverable is to you you know on, on my timetable not yours
3: the obvious thing here is how condescending And oppressive. That is how uh, you're discarding somebody's agency. You're discarding their ability. You're the racist. And it seems to me that we've lost this argument that the anti racists have made so much progress in spite of the intellectual infirmity of their position, because we won't say that policy is racist. You're telling me that a black student can't hand his homework in on time like a white student can. That's a bunch of nonsense. And you need black families to stand up and say so. That's falderall. And how dare you have such low expectations for my kid
2: Right, and now it's not only low expectations for black kids, it's low expectations for all kids because they've just reduced the expectations for all 106,000 kids in the San Diego school system. It's ridiculous. So what they've said is, no, 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 we're focused on this idea of mastery. And mastery is a concept that every educator is aware of. That's what you should be seeking to achieve anyway, that at the end of the year, a student should be able to demonstrate mastery within a given context. Well, guess what? Mastery isn't just achieved at the end of the year it's not like you cram for for the final it's demonstrated over the course of the year to show that you're making progress is a completely inane way to pursue education the irony is if you do that and then at the end of the year there are now racial disparities will the reason be that you eliminated homework on time no they'll say it's because of systemic racism and so this this merry-go-round just continues, and this is what we have to battle.
3: Well, Ian, it seems like a situation such as in San Diego, the San Diego school district, is where the parents need to assert themselves, right?
2: If my teacher, and for my own children, came to me and said, oh, we're no longer requiring homework on time, I'd say, what are you talking about? And so parents should have the right to say no to a school system that makes this kind of decision, and hopefully they do have an opportunity to go to a school that says hey, in the real world, you've got to demonstrate conscientiousness, uh, showing up on time, doing what you said you would do, being responsible, because that's how the real world works. And so we want to encourage strong study habits. We are holding you accountable to get your homework on time as a way to demonstrate that you're on a pathway to mastery. That's why choice is so important, because when schools have a monopoly and can make this kind of decision, what is a parent?
3: To do. He is Ian Rowe, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, co-founder of the National Summer School Initiative, former CEO of Public Prep in the Bronx. Ian, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the show of building. On our conversation before the break with Ian Rowe, who ran public prep charter schools in the Bronx uh, on school choice, per his uh, piece about what uh, San Diego school district is doing to uh, relax the standards in order to provide equity in the outcomes academically for students in their district in the most sort of cynical, soft bigotry of low expectations kind of way. Uh, this from the AP of all places, trade-offs, consequences that are much under discussed. Talking to, um, a Mental Health Program Director of Franciscan Hospital for Children in Boston... I've been director of this program for 21 years and worked in child psychiatric services since the 1980s, and it is very much unprecedented, said this hospital mental health services director, about the ER transfers from around the state of Massachusetts that his hospital is his program are receiving. The specific examples, particularly those with uh, for young people that have developmental disabilities, they talk about an 11-year-old girl who's got autism, depression, anxiety. Her mom talks about uh, how much her condition has worsened because of isolation she's never met the teacher she's never met the kids she felt more isolated more and more like things aren't getting better without the distraction of getting up going to school or to camp sitting at home with her own thoughts all day with a computer has allowed that to worsen the reference by the associated press Studies and surveys in Asia, Australia, the U.S., Canada, China, Europe all show worsening mental health in children and teens since the beginning of the pandemic. World Health Organization survey of 130 countries published in October, more than 60 percent reported disruptions to mental health services for vulnerable people, including children and teens, because of being cut off from the first world. So many of those countries, which is exactly what the WHO envoy for COVID said about lockdown policies for food supply chains so that millions of more people around the world wouldn't be brought to the brink of starvation because of broken supply chains, the result of shutdowns in the first world. Other reviews find that... uh, Between 23 and 60% of U.S. kids who need inpatient mental health care have to wait in ERs to receive it. They're kept stable but often receive little or no mental health care during those visits. So much so that Yale New Haven Children's Hospital started offering teletherapy to kids waiting in its emergency room for mental health care, said a pediatric ER physician at that facility. And yet, um, what do we know? What do we know about scaring ourselves to death in terms of the actual threat? The survival rate, age 0 to 19, the CDC, 99.997%. Age 20 to 49, the survival rate, 99.98%. Age 50 to 69, survival rate, 99.5%. Age 70 plus, 94.6%. So is the response, particularly its impact on young people and children specifically, commensurate with the threat? Is that it responsible? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend, Reverend Robert Sirico, the president and co-founder of the Acton Institute. Father Sirico, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thank you Before, for having me. Yeah, and I want to get to your perspectives on K-12 education specifically, but just pulling out for a second and thinking about the choices we're making in the context of the threat we're facing and the consequences they're having. You know, the Acton Institute is connecting good intentions to sound economics which is basically the same thing as saying sound logic. Are our good intentions here connected to sound logic?
6: Well, obviously not. (laughs) You know, let me just say this. Complexity is the friend of bureaucracy. The more that this issue can be complexified, that is, the more impenetrable it seems, the more incomprehensible it is, the more bureaucracy can step in and say, Well we're we're the professionals. So we have this kind of professionalism which becomes the standard of everything. We see this across the board, certainly in healthcare and all the rest, but especially in schools, the whole notion of credentialing and giving us your kids when the simple answer is who knows the child best? It's the parents. We entrust the, the parents to be the primary providers of clothing and shoes and health care and nutrition for children but when it comes to education then we need to have the professionals step in and tell us what to do and we're now beginning to see consequences of this kind of political educational apparatus that imposes this, this standard of professionalism you know what what we need to do is not lower standards for children but lower the regulations on parents in terms of educating their children. You know, by the way, in addition to running a think tank, the Acton Institute, I'm the pastor of a parish with a school that over the last eight years has grown three hundred percent. We had eighty uh, sixty eight students when we began, we have about three hundred now.
3: And and uh, Father, let me hold you there and I wanna yeah. to, to get a full uh, a, a full perspective on the experience of, of your school and sort of, you know, model of success. That's what we try and do on this show. Present models of success that could be replicated and scaled and that's what we want to do with you. More with Father Robert Rico president and co-founder of the Acton Institute
8: yeah. Make your heart, make
4: it real, forget about
3: it. This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization, helping every family choose the best K-12 education for their children. Find them on social media at schoolchoicenow. That's at schoolchoicenow.
0: <laughs> the more you'll know, this, 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 this is the Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Father Robert Sirico. He's the president and co-founder of the Acton Institute. And before the break, he was mentioning that he's also uh, uh, oversees a parish and a parish school. And you were talking about the growth of that school. Um, you know, Give people some perspective in terms of how the school you oversee operates and, and what's been happening over the last several years and, and perhaps even more, more, more notably over the last several months.
6: Our curriculum, I'm sorry for going on like that. Before no, that you, please. The problem you have when you have a preacher on. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, the thing is, our, our school was like many other schools. It was more abundant, including Catholic, including private schools. And when I came, we introduced a, um, a more traditional approach to education, a classical curriculum. We drew initially uh, largely from parents who were homeschooling their kids Um, many homeschooling parents do it because they don't trust the educational systems that they have available to them. And this has really been an advantage for us because uh, we want the parents to be the primary educators of their kids. We want them involved in the whole process of education and formation more broadly, not just dropping data points into kids' heads, but forming them as citizens and, in our case, as Catholics. And uh, it has really caught marvelously because we've grown almost 300% uh, in the eight years. Uh, we've graduated now two high school classes. We didn't even have a high school when we began. And um, all kinds of awards that they've won for Latin and classical curriculum and everything. And the reason for it is we've simplified it. And I said to the parents, you are the educators. We're here to help facilitate that education. And they've done it. We've got both full-time students and uh, our lower grades are all meeting uh, in-person education. And then because of the mandate of our governor, we can't have the high school kids in. So they're doing... You're in
3: Michigan, for those who don't know.
6: Right. I'm sorry. Um, But, you know, we keep them involved, too. In fact, I just found out. I didn't even know this happened. Uh, Yesterday was a few... Sunday was the Feast of St. Nicholas, which is, you know, kind of lead up to Christmas. And the school put together these little St. Nicholas packages of candy and everything for the kids, and they were delivered to all of the high school kids who couldn't come to school. We delivered these packages to say, look, we're here. We love you. We'll we'll get back (laughs) together soon. So it's that kind of sense of community that needs to be not a professional factory. And that's and what
3: challenge with. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because uh, you juxtapose that against some of what we've heard and seen reported around the country during these uh, on-again, off-again school shutdowns, depending on where you are, maybe never on-again, uh, just uh, schools has been offline uh, and yeah. just online all, this entire time. Uh, but the, the idea, hey, we don't want parents... Uh, P, you know, snooping in on our Zoom class sessions. You got to, you know, oh. the teachers teach t- talking about that and stuff. And it's not just it's not it's not just the immediate reaction is what do you have to hide, but it's it's even bigger than that. Is it? it's not just about what you have to hide. It's what I think about the parent. Sure. Yeah, right.
6: You're in the way. You're in the way. Yes. I mean, that is so inconceivable in my context in our our cultural context of our school. Parents are seen as great assets, and the process of a child's formation and, and growth. The other thing that happened right right at the beginning of this whole thing, we had uh, Secretary DeVos who visited our school right at the beginning of the school year because she wanted to be at a school that was actually functioning. And some public school teacher said, well, why don't you come and visit public schools? She said, well, you're not open. <laughs> <I can't come laughs> it. Because the teachers' unions were afraid for the teachers, not for the kids, for the teachers. And our teachers said we would die in order to be able to teach our kids if if we had to take that. And this is the sense of a vocation, and that's what we need to reestablish. And I think one of the great obstacles, in addition to the regulations, it, are the unions. And, of course, the unions have been the source of the complexity of the regulatory uh, bureaucracy.
3: Um, the other thing, it, it seems, is that um, the teachers' unions have go through this rigmarole. Uh, we're seeing this play out in Chicago right now. It's played out in New York for the better part of the last six, seven months. Same thing with L.A. Is, uh, no, 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 we want to come back, but uh, you have to – there's these ground rules. Um, there are certain conditions you have to meet to make it safe and so on and so forth. And the, it's, it's disingenuous in my from my point of view, but it's effective because they essentially say, well, if you oppose making our working environment safe, then you're, then you're opposing safety. I mean, you, you right. don't want your kid's teacher to be safe. It's that sort right. of sentimentalism that is replete in our culture, really denigrating our culture. It's, it's just sort of a, a soft form of barbarism. Speaking of okay. soft forms of bigotry earlier, it's a soft form of barbarism, but it's effective.
6: It, it's, it's not just sentimentalism, though, that prompts that. I think it is a very cold-hearted political maneuver to sit down and say, here are the talking points that uh, we need to make because we've done these various surveys and this is what will play best, Uh, as though parents don't want a safe environment
3: for their kids. Right. Or their kids' teachers. Or their kids' teachers. Of course, who's going to teach the kids? (laughs) Right. 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 But but I mean, so it, it seems to me and we started this conversation with Ian Rowe uh, a little bit earlier in the hour, but I'll put it to you, too. I mean, it's, to me, the message is and parents have so many parents have this wrong. I mean, I understand if you don't have the resources that provide choice, but, but generally speaking, the play right now should be to say, I'm not trying to break my kids back into some of these school systems. This is the opportunity to break them out. And uh, maybe that means resources need to shift in terms of how they flow from central institutions to me, the parent, and the family. But that's yeah. what we should be advocating for now in this time, now that these school systems and these teachers' unions that run them have exposed themselves for, for who they are and what their real agenda is.
6: And, and it comes at good timing because the Supreme Court uh, in the last session ruled exactly on that in three cases that reinforce the notion of, of school choice. Uh, of course, the opposition has always been church and state, but it's really the parents just having access to the money and to the education of their kids, which is being spent on the public school system. And a fraction of that, I mean, our, our kids, I think our parents pay maybe 3000 maybe a little bit more than 3000 a year to have their kids come to a private school, Catholic school. Uh, but... in uh,
3: Across the town at the public school, it's eight or ten thousand dollars a year.
6: Right. And no, <laughs> right. Right. Are, no. Right.
3: Yeah. I mean, doing that and good it, on their test. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he is Father Robert Sirico president and co-founder of the Acton Institute. Father Sorico, uh, always enjoy it. Thanks for jo- uh, joining us again. Appreciate Thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: of the show at danprofshow.com
3: Welcome back to the show and last hour we talked about Max Public House the uh, autonomous zone that was uh, shut down in New York City in Staten Island Well uh, the uh, city that gave rise to that autonomous zone has shut down its mayor effectively, turns out. Jenny Durkin, remember the autonomous zone in Seattle was going to usher in a summer of love? Yeah, of course Instead, it ushered in a summer of mayhem and uh, uh, disrepute for the city of Seattle. Police chief resigning crime spiking as it has in all these urban centers run by Marxist non-prosecution politicians turned their streets over to the mob. Well, Jenny Durkin, who going into the summer was all set to run for re-election in 2021. You can be sure of that. All you have to do is read the accounts from Seattle Media to confirm what I'm saying is true. Well, she made a bit of a surprise announcement.
5: I could spend the next year campaigning to keep this job or focus all my energy on doing the job. There was only one right choice for our city, doing the job. I've decided not to run for reelection because oh. Seattle, we still have some tough months ahead.
3: Yeah. Yeah. She just wants to focus on doing the job for these tough months ahead rather than running for reelection. Sure. Right. Uh, that, and if you believe that, then you believe the summer of love rap, love rap from her as well. So perhaps uh, some who are suggesting that the pendulum is swinging back against some of these mayors. In uh, big cities that have allowed their big cities to be overrun, that have allowed the economic corridors to be decimated, cheerleaded for it, actually, while playing cheap racial politics at the expense of the productive, maybe there will be a reckoning. You know, Jenny Durk, I mean, although, you know, what comes after Jenny Durk and it's sort of like what was the choice for Ted Wheeler, but other than Ted Wheeler in Portland? Well, a formal Antifa member as opposed to just an Antifa appeaser. Uh, We'll see what comes after Jenny Durkin, because uh, there are even more radical elements on the Seattle City Council than her still promoting defund the police. And so it's the same in all these cities. It's always sort of, yes, uh, they may have lost, they may have tired of the incumbent Marxist, but are you going to get somebody more or less radical? Are you going to get somebody that is more sensible and constructive an adult who lives on terra firma, or are you going to get uh, even a more committed ideologue? Don't know. Do not know. But uh, when the reckoning comes for, uh, people like Garcetti in LA with his aspirations, if he doesn't get a cabinet post and, you know, gets to, uh, press the escape hatch essentially, or Lori Lightfoot, my home city mayor, uh, even, um uh, even Fry in Minneapolis, that Justin Trudeau impersonator. You start seeing those dominoes fall, maybe, uh, and, and again, watching what comes after, maybe I'll believe that there is real opportunity in these big cities and big city America to, to turn them around with sensible policies and sensible people. Maybe. But it's nice to see Jenny Durkin forced out of office at minimum. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan
0: Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the show, and uh, President Trump in Georgia over the weekend, Saturday night, rallying the faithful, and they turned out in mass. that uh, Trump's support is not going anywhere to uh, extrapolate from the crowd size, that's for sure. He had uh, very specific appeals. I mean, yes, he talked a lot uh, in his remarks about uh, the uh, fraud and malfeasance uh, with respect to the administration of the election in so many states, the states that are in controversy. But he also spent a good deal of time, in, in no uncertain terms, promoting the two Republican senators who are facing January 5th runoff elections and suggesting, contrary to the advice and counsel of some, no, no, get out and vote on January 5th. He was unequivocal in support for the two Republican senators and for the need for sort of the massive turnout that he enjoyed in Georgia and elsewhere, frankly.
0: The answer to the Democrat fraud is not to stay at home. That's what Nancy Pelosi and Schumer, that's what they want you to do. Stay at home. Just stay at home. If you want to do something to them, I don't want to use the word revenge, but it is a certain revenge to the Democrats. You show up and vote in record numbers. That's what you have to do. You got to get out and vote. Let them steal Georgia again. You'll never be able to look yourself in the mirror. We have to hold the line. So don't listen to my friends. Just go out. Just go out. And you know what they're saying? They're saying, we want you to fix the system. We're going to fix the system. But the system will be fixed when these people get in. They'll get in and we'll fix the system
3: memo to Linwood and Sidney Powell. For more on this and a few other topics, there are many to cover. We're pleased to be joined again by Conrad Black, publisher, financier, member of the British House of Lords, author of the book, Donald J. Trump, A President Like No Other. Conrad Black, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
7: Thanks for inviting me.
3: Do you think uh, Trump struck the right notes, uh, the right balance on Saturday night in Georgia?
7: Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, it's not for me to tell the president how to speak to a partisan crowd. But I think those who are asking him not to refer to his views of what went on in his own election are being unjust and unrealistic. I mean, obviously, there is a real question mark over some aspects of this election. And he, if there has been skullduggery, is the victim of it. And and, and in any case, he is, uh, he is the president. He is the Republican nominee for president. And he has a perfect right to give his views on the election. But he, I thought he more than balanced it by saying that those of his his friends who have uh, disputed the outcome on the presidential side in Georgia uh, should should uh, punish the state by, in effect, acclaiming these two radical Democrats. Uh, I don't mean the radically democratic. I mean the radically left Democrats. Uh, you know, Ossoff and. Uh, the
3: Reverend Warnock the,
7: yeah Warnock yeah yeah Warnock yeah. Uh, I, I mean that's nonsense I mean the, the I mean it's an absolutely absurd response and I have great liking and respect for Sidney Powell but she shouldn't be saying that I mean the answer to complaints about how the secretary of state and the governor have handled the presidential election in Georgia is is not to inflict upon georgia the acclamation of a radical left-wing democrat it's just a complete non sequitur and i thought that actually the pres- i watched almost all of his speech and i thought the president balanced it well
3: yeah and it's it's really interesting too. just staying on the senate runoff for a second because i think this is just illustrative of how the left works and there's not uh, not enough of an appreciation for it so david Perdue is being excoriated for you know uh fraudulently there's no basis for it as somehow profiteering off of insider knowledge with respect to uh COVID uh, with lockdowns and COVID vaccine developments and so forth it completely. He was cleared by Senate ethics investigation. Uh, there was a good Bloomberg piece that basically says, look, if you look at his trades, there is just no if you if you actually look at the numbers, there's just no basis for it. There's This is nothing out of the ordinary that somebody as sophisticated as he is would be doing. And there's nothing uh, obviously conflictual about his activity in the market. And by the way, this is a guy who was like an executive at Reebok. He was the CEO of Dollar General. He has a real business career. By contrast, his opponent, John Ossoff, has sort of no, virtually no business career. His little film company that's he, uh, that he's a part of has sort of conflicting valuations in his economic disclosure forms. And he's done business with... Um, uh, countries in countries and with the governments of those countries that are hostile to the United States, including China and so you know the successful businessman is the evil guy who 's profiteering, and this 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 other guy. Um, is the you sort of the heroic David against the you know the big moneyed interests in in Georgia, even as he comes from a wealthy family in addition to his phony baloney uh, business career it was it 's almost beto o 'Rourke but even beto o 'Rourke had a more substantial business career than did john Ossoff. but it 's their ability to sort of roll reverse the narrative on where the truth lies in comparison that is remarkable, and this is I think an underappreciated uh, another underappreciated example of it.
7: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I find Ossoff absolutely the most irritating type of candidate. Uh, I mean, he, he's he's a, his, his chief qualification for any office was surviving childbirth, and he is an <laughs> absolute hypocrite, and 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 one of these mouthy, obnoxious champagne leftists. And and uh, unfortunately, we can't all have such good fortune and good judgment in choosing our parents in economic terms. And and uh, from that, as as you say, it's just mudslinging, and and, and that's uh, you know that's the answer, mudslinging. And I, I, look, I cannot imagine that Georgia could elect two such people to the Senate. Uh, the, I mean, uh, Warnock has the distinction, which it undoubtedly is. of being the current successor to Martin Luther King in, in, in the uh, First Baptist Church in, in Atlanta, Ebenezer, I guess it's called. And, uh, you know, that is a distinguished heritage, but that's all he's got in common uh, with, with Dr. King. The, the, he is essentially uh, uh, capping in a career of preaching, if not hate and racism, something awfully close to it. And and uh, he's played footsie with... with the violent sections of, of uh, Black Lives Matter and and his attempt to masquerade right now as a free enterprise seeking pious man of God is just about as nauseating as Ossoff's masquerade. Now I, I thought you haven't asked me this, but I thought from what I saw that that Senator Loeffler did a pretty good job of exposing him as an extremist. Um, and and uh, I see that the, the Sunday Walter debate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Trafalgar poll down there, which you know they have a pretty good record, uh, shows her leading. <clears throat> I mean, I, I I would have thought that they that they should win. I think they are favored by you know the experts. And Carl Rove, I think, is handling the finances, so you know they'll be in good professional hands for the Republicans. Uh, but um, I, 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 you know, it, it's a it's a tense situation. There's no doubt about that. We've got a, we've got a mystifying. Uh, election result, where a person who's not qualified, who nobody claims will be a good president, who didn't campaign, uh, appears to have won a tainted election, and uh, and a president who, 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 despite the admittedly controversial aspects of his public personality, has been a very effective and successful president, uh, appears not to have been reelected. It's just a, a surreal situation.
3: Well, I mean, I don't want to delve too deeply into it. I know you're not an attorney and, and don't want to play. Well, no, actually, I am, but nothing oh, the you jurisdiction that's relevant to the oh, United Oh, OK. States. OK, well, I stand corrected then. But you don't want to play an election attorney in the United States. Then how about that on the no, radio? No, and I'm not qualified to do that. But but I mean, did, do you have even just on the public pronouncements, the presentation of the case? Um, your assessment of what the Trump legal team has provided over the last month? I
7: I have to say I've been disappointed in it. I I don't think they were ready. They hadn't prepared. uh, And they had just too many frivolous cases, Uh, uh, especially when you know that a fair number of the judges will be at, at, at least somewhat inclined to decide against you. Uh, I, I don't mean immovably so, but they, they would start with that inclination, many of them. Uh, You'll you have to have your facts clear and persuasive, and that has not always been the case. Some of these cases have been absurd and shouldn't have been taken. Now, with that said, I think <clears throat> that the case going on Pennsylvania matters to the Supreme Court, which Justice Alito had required the the responses by this morning, um, I, I, I would say it would be unwise to dismiss that, I don't mean for the Supreme Court to dismiss that, for for commentators to dismiss the possibility that it may be at least somewhat successful. It seems to me, doing what we've just agreed I shouldn't do, that um, since the Constitution reserves the management of elections in the states to the legislatures of those states, And the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania purported to overrule a legislature. There is a real constitutionality question about aspects of that election. And and, and I think a similar thing may be raised in a couple of the other states.
3: Uh, when we come back with Conrad Black, I want to uh, get his assessment of uh, the Biden cabinet as it's taking shape and and uh, query him about the so-called Great Reset. Uh, he's written a couple of pieces about uh, what a Biden presidency might look like uh, and we'll tackle those with him. Conrad Black, publisher financier, member of the British House of Lords, author of Donald J. Trump, a president like no other. More right after this.
0: and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
3: Welcome back to the show. And uh, before the break, we're talking about uh, starting to talk about uh, Joe Biden's cabinet selections. He's made a couple more recently. Xavier Becerra, the former California attorney general, current California attorney general for HHS, his main qualification being that he likes to sue the Little Sisters of the Poor and is unabashedly pro-abortion. And uh, general from the uh, Obama era, who was uh, instrumental in arguably the premature withdrawal of U.S. forces from Iraq for Secretary of Defense. But um, there's a larger issue that at least is in question, and that's of this notion of the Great Reset. Great Reset was called for by Klaus Schwab, chairman of the World Economic Forum, back in 2014. He said, we must build entirely new foundations for our economic and social systems. Uh, He um, talking about um, transforming industry, society, nations. And this is Gavin Newsom over the summer back uh, in uh, the early, well, actually, actually the early spring when the lockdown policies were just being instituted the first go around, talking uh, about uh, the opportunity that uh, COVID has provided. Forgive me for being long winded. Uh, but absolutely, we
6: see this as an opportunity to reshape uh, the way we do business and how we govern. And that shouldn't put shivers up the spines of You know, one party or the
3: other, I think. Shouldn't it? In uh, June, uh, going back to Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum, the pandemic, he wrote, represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world to create a healthier, more equitable, there's that equity word again, and more prosperous future. The silver lining of the pandemic, Schwab wrote, we can make radical changes to our lifestyles. For reaction to this, we're pleased to be rejoined by Conrad Black. He, of course, is a publisher, financier, member of remember the British House of Lords, author of, most recently, Donald J. Trump, a president like no other. Conrad Black, uh, what about this uh, great reset? Uh, John Kerry essentially advertised it when he was rolled out as part of Biden's national security team as well. This idea that uh, COVID-19 provides just the opportunity to transform everything for the left.
7: Well, look, uh, John Kerry is a moron, and uh, he's to <laughs> repeat anything he hears the- strikes his fancy, which is a, a kind of, uh, you know, someone who married an extremely wealthy woman by by right of survivorship of a, her, her first husband, and, um, and and is again another one of these champagne lefties, uh, but a, a very suggestible of a person of no demonstrated ability to think these issues through for himself. Klaus Schwab, I also know, uh, I've known him for great many years, I was on that, the Dabas Circuit for twenty years until I couldn't take the nonsense any longer, and and he is you know he masquerades as a sort of good shepherd to the world and 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 a a, a trendsetter in uh, in uh, public policy matters. Uh, you'll have to pardon the barking of my wife's formidable dog in the background. That's yeah, all right, no, um, no problem. Uh, I and mean, I'm sure there are a lot of dog owners amongst your listeners. He's a sweet dog, but obviously there's somebody around he doesn't approve of. Well. Anyway, the, maybe the, um, Davos
3: set him off. Maybe that, that's, that's yeah, that a trigger <laughs> word
7: I all means, Yeah, but but uh, I mean, but Klaus is essentially a charlatan. Uh, I mean, it's a schmoozing operation. You go there and are invited to, and I quote, network. And he somehow suckered practically everybody in the world into coming. To his meetings in the ghastly little town of Davos, there is it is impossible to get a proper dinner there unless you go to the McDonald's, which, by the way, demonstrators <laughs> smash up every 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 year. Uh, it's a terrible place, impossible to get to, desperately cold, and uh, and and you meal about with all of these uh, uh, eminent people from all over the world and, and have. I mean I was free I was one of the heads of the media group and and we had panel sessions on completely obscure subjects the whole thing is nonsense and the passage you quoted from Klaus is is just piffle. And and the, the Klaus Schwab basically, and we have to give him credit for this, started a little conference in Davos, built it up so that even the president of the U.S. and, and other holders of great offices attended. Uh, as a businessman, I salute him, but his masquerade as having any qualification at all to advise on where the world is or should be going economically or in social policy is simply bunk. It's just absolute bunk, and it is proof for at least... The corroborative, probative evidence that it is bunk that a moron like John Kerry has taken it up.
3: Well, right, but it doesn't mean it won't be adopted. I mean, so you uh, have. I, I,
7: that, yeah, but that was yes. not your question. I know. No. Look, like, we, we, we're we're dealing <laughs> right. with a trend here, a right. faddish trend, and and uh, but but it won't be adopted because it is contrary to the economic interest of most people, and and despite the the. Uh, susceptibility of a great many people to be romanced by apparently idealistic and, and perhaps uh, ideas capable of implementation. Nobody, absolutely nobody really votes against their own economic interest.
3: Well, so then what do you see happening in a, in a, a Biden presidency? Is this just waiting him out? shambles.
7: If they actually take office, it will be a shambles. Uh, The only way that Biden could be a successful president is if he put the left over the side, said, I'm a one-term president. I know that. Uh, I'm throwing in here to make reasonable bipartisan centrist deals with McConnell and McCarthy, the Republican leaders in the Congress, as well as the seen Democrats. And, and uh, uh, I'm ignoring the party, and we're going to try and get a, a proper health care bill that's a reasonable compromise and affordable to the country. We'll try and get infrastructure modified and modernized and, and, and things like that, constructive well, what, things what, running.
3: What, not, is, there's
7: no sign he's going to do that.
3: Well, right. That's what I was going to say. What do his cabinet selections tell you? So uh,
7: hopeless. I mean, I could live with Yellen, although her only uh, her only answer to everything is just increasing the money supply, and you know, you can in, even in the public sector you can only kite checks so far. You know, <laughs> but, but uh, the, the, as as I'm sure Governor uh, Newsom knows from his well known career as a businessman, I mean, his career has been Nancy Pelosi's nephew, as far as I can see. <laughs> but, but the the um, uh, the, the, some of these people and I look I don't mind the former ambassador to India at the UN I think that might be not a bad uh, appointment but um, and some of the people like Jay Johnson in defense I think could be alright he was quite forthright in saying the president this president was right to deal with an emergency on the southern border I think he's a reasonable person but uh, the the uh, the man you mentioned uh, nominated for health and uh, human services sure. is I yeah. a preposterous Candidate. I'm not at all impressed with Tony Blinken as Secretary of State. He's another one who's just, you know, drinking the Russian Kool-Aid and thinks Russians are, you know, behind every bush and under the bed and everywhere. And and he's been associated with that insane Iran nuclear deal and other bad ideas. Uh, and and uh, as 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 a group so far i, I you know I, this guy nominated for homeland security it 's simply a scandalous choice given given that he is in favor of open borders and let let all the all the destitute of the world flow into the country i mean that isn 't homeland security that 's suicide
3: he is Conrad black publisher, financier, member of the British House of Lords, the book Donald J. Trump, a president, like no other. Conrad Black, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us.
7: Pleasure's mine, man.
3: Take care. (laughs)
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the program. Steve Call, he is the dean of the Columbia School of Journalism. He's a New Yorker contributor. Uh, recently had some interesting comments in an interview on MSNBC talking about the problems he has with Facebook and really the problem he has with free speech in the modern context. Sort of remarkable statements. Remember, this is a dean of one of the putative leading schools of journalism in the country. Listen closely.
9: I mean, you know, this is a private corporation that is motivated, as all companies are, to make money that is acting as a kind of public square and to expect that it is going to adjust its motivations to preserve democracy or to do the right thing all of the time, it's just naive. It's not, it's not what it's built to do. And the history of Facebook that's described in this narrative is one of continually breaking things and then trying to fix them partially and, and getting better and better at apologizing. But I came away from it thinking, you know, it's a structure. It is not something that can be changed except by changing the structure of it. And, yes, Facebook has moved somewhat. They had a better election in 2020 than they did in 2016. They've learned to put some brakes on, uh, you know, here and there. But you can't uh, get away from the fact that their mission is to connect everybody in the world. That's what motivates Mark Zuckerberg, and it has it's his passion. And he... Profoundly believes in free speech. And, you know, those of us in journalism uh, have to come to terms with the fact that free speech, a principle that we hold sacred, is being weaponized against uh, the principles of journalism. And what do we do about that? I, I just say, you know, as, as reporters, we kind of march into this war with our facts uh, nobly shouldered as if they were going to win the day. And what we're seeing is that because of the scale of this alternate reality that you've been talking about, Our facts, our principles, our scientific method, it isn't enough. So what do we do?
3: Well, that's a very stylistic description of uh, journalism. It's uh, also should be a chilling description of free speech. Can free speech be weaponized? Can it? Uh, Journalists uh, and and, uh, media companies, they don't exist to make a profit. They're private corporations that have to make a profit, don't they? MSNBC, The New Yorker. These are all for-profit businesses as far as I understand it. Steve, am I wrong? The noble journalist and the evil Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, and I'm no particular fan of Mark Zuckerberg. I wish he was as much of a free speech absolutist as Steve Call makes him out to be. Of course, he's not. For some perspective on what Steve Call had to say, pleased to be joined by Roger Rehm. He's the president of the Fund for American Studies, and he's well-situated to comment on this because I'm a Fund for American Studies program graduate but I was in the comparative political and economic systems, but they also run a journalism school for aspiring journalists that are matriculating their way through our colleges and universities. And I wonder maybe a a little debate between Britt Hume, who I know is a regular speaker at Fund for American Studies programs, and Steve Call would be uh, illuminating to uh, the next uh, crop of Fund for American Studies students. Roger Reem, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Just pick it up there in in terms of what Steve Call had to say about uh, the weaponization of free speech, the noble journalists, but their facts aren't enough. And the suggestion really is that speech, free speech needs to be regulated along the lines of whatever Steve Call says.
1: Yeah, I uh, just caught the end of that. It's very good. I'll, uh... Good topic. And I'd be happy to talk about both our students who are coming to our journalism programs and our you know, it relates to a lot of things we're doing to train and prepare people for careers in journalism.
3: Yeah, well, what is the approach uh, at at Fund for American Studies with respect to students who aspire to careers in, in journalism? Hopefully they don't run across Steve Call.
1: Well, uh, from the very earliest years of our organization, not long after we were founded in 1967, we began to run programs for journalism students. These are students in college who were you know, determined to pursue careers in journalism uh, in the 70s. They, you know, of course, got motivated by Watergate and Woodward and Bernstein, and they all wanted to be the next you know, Woodward and Bernstein. And we felt that they weren't being adequately prepared in journalism schools because they were just being taught that, that how to write, how to edit. And they weren't learning anything of substance. They weren't studying American history or learning economics and getting the background that would help them be effective in their trade. So we started doing seminars in teaching economics and ethics, grew into a summer-long program for journalism students. And I think it's been very successful in impressing on young people that to be good journalists, they have to have a good understanding of some substantive areas. You know, we've encouraged students to study statistics, learn math, learn science learn economics. Uh, it'll be do them well in their trade as journalists.
3: Roger, let's hold it there when we come back. I want to I want to pick up that because this is such an important topic of sort of next generation of thought leaders across the sector, but particularly in journalism. Let's focus there a little bit more. More with Roger Reem, president of the Fund for American Studies, right after this. Uh-huh. Brought to you by the Fund for American Studies. The Fund for American Studies is an educational nonprofit that is changing the world by developing leaders for a free society. Offering transformational programs that teach the principles of limited government, free market economics, and honorable leadership to students and young professionals in America and around the world. Download a free ebook to learn how you can become a champion for liberty at teachingfreedom.org. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is
0: the Dan prof Show.
3: Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Roger Reem. He's the president of the Fund for American Studies, TFAS.org, for more information on that program. And uh, there, there are many programs, plural. And Roger, before the break, we were talking about uh, the journalism program at the Fund for American Studies, just in the context of what uh, journalism has become. And uh, you were explicating how the the thought was, you know, give aspiring journalism students, like uh, students in any discipline, some sort of knowledge base, not so necessarily so they, um, you know, remember Say's Law, but so that they understand, uh, you know, the understand how to be intellectually curious, essentially, how to ask the right questions, how to look at things from different angles, just how to think. And uh, it seems that um, – You know, that's lost in a lot of disciplines. Maybe journalism is the leader in the clubhouse on that score.
1: That's right. I mean, I would recommend uh, someone who wants to go to journalism, study the liberal arts. You know, like you said, learn how to think, learn about the best of what men and women have written over the years, the great ideas of our civilization. Unfortunately, in journalism schools today, and this was articulated by a professor emeritus at Stanford recently, the idea is there's no such thing as objective truth. And the role of a journalist is just to promote a social social justice agenda and without regard to the facts. It used to be Follow the facts where they lead you as a journalist. Now it's promote your agenda, advance your ideology in journalism, and it's just a tragedy. And we've seen it in the major media in our country where that's led.
3: Yeah, and you and you see, and you know, and part of it is just sort of like the, the quality of the of the of the journalism, the quality of the reporting is a reflection of the quality of the the journalist's thinking or knowledge base. And so, I mean, one of my laments with respect to media generally. Particularly television news, but this extends to print now as well, which is no context and no consequence you know there there's no institutional knowledge, so it doesn't provide you you give inf- you give information that has no contest it's presented it in abstractions like covid deaths for example, to be uh salient. And there's no consequence either so that you, you're giving the reader some value-added information to actually think about and, and you know, draw their own conclusions or, or come up with their own questions even.
1: There's this old expression in journalism that the role of a journalist is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Yes, certainly Peter Dunn. it's a clever, clever saying, but shouldn't a journalist rather be searching out the facts and the truth of a story and not with a mission that his job is to – afflict the comfortable, you know, go after the, the successful and the wealthy in our society. But, yeah, you're seeing this in coverage of COVID. I, the New York Times, surprisingly, just a couple of days ago, had a story buried in it where it said that those colleges and universities that have the most in-person classes have the lowest COVID rates, uh, where students are going into classroom. These classrooms are being disinfected. They aren't spreading the virus when the students are taking courses online they are more likely to be going to parties and uh having time with friends so it's contrary to what you know the science quote unquote is were being told in the major media so yeah it's it's we see that in fact you know the coverage of a pandemic unfortunately
3: uh, speaking of uh, the you know different cohorts of students how about different generations of students and let's just stick in journalism to as as a as a as a base here to compare a, at the fund for american yeah. studies at the at the journalism school that you guys run i mean cuz you get you get people that uh come from a left uh left perspective or center left perspective and go off into their career from with a center left perspective so it's not just conservatives and i wonder how how you think uh the students have changed over the last generation or two or, or maybe they haven't changed. Maybe uh, with respect to the Fund for American Studies, it's been pretty, pretty static. What's what's your perspective as a practitioner? Yeah,
1: it's definitely changed. Uh, students are probably more mission driven in, in good and bad ways today. They all want to find meaning in the in their careers and in their work. Uh, They often think, I think mistakenly, that meaning is found in, you know, going to work in a nonprofit. And I try to encourage students that if you want to help people go into business, be a a business person, because those those that's where you can really help people. But uh, I think young people today, uh, there's still this idea they want to be crusaders and say in journalism. That's always been with us. But they're a little more impatient. Uh, They want you know, they don't necessarily want to pay their dues. We used to advise students. Start in a small town covering the uh, city hall or the police beat. Learn to report. And then later on, you can move to a bigger market and eventually get to New York or Washington. But now students come out of journalism school. They go right to New York and Washington. They start writing online, and they start expressing their opinions in blogs. And so it's a very different uh, career path today, I think, than it was 20 or 30 years ago.
3: We uh, spoke about him on this program last week on the – Unfortunate occasion of his passing, uh, the great uh, George Mason University economics professor Walter Williams. Um, I have known him for about 10 years through radio and interviewing him many, many times, uh, lucky for me. But uh, you had known him for a long time as well uh, as part of the academic community in which you regularly interact because of the Fund for American Studies programs. And I just wanted to give you the opportunity to reflect on, on George Will. I mean George on Walter Williams and the impact that he had, at George Mason University, not just at George Mason University, but, but because of his scholarship and, and also very Milton Friedman like his ability to make economics accessible to people, you know, across the great expanse of America and the West generally. Um, just, just, his importance and his impact and, and how that reflects in terms of a, a standard you might hold up to some of the students that come through your programs.
1: Oh yeah. I love talking about Walter. I met him about 40 years ago and, and Dan, the last time I was on your program, I think he had been a guest just before me because you were mentioning that he had been on. And mm. I think that's great. You had him on often. Uh, he, he, he just had, uh, a great way of communicating economics. He was, uh, empirically driven. Uh, he followed the evidence, but he also had very strong moral principles, and uh, he believed in our Constitution, and he, he he really said that it's our rule book, and uh, he would give talks to our students about, in fact, we have one online at our teachingfreedom.org site under the button webinars, if anyone wants to listen to it, about the legitimate role of government in a free society. Uh, it's just, a, he, he gave a great talk on on government and you know, really believed as Jefferson said that the natural progress of things is for government to gain ground and liberty to yield. And he tried to bring us all back to our our rule book as to what the proper functions of government were. And, and, and I just add that, you know, he wrote a book once called All It Takes is Guts. And Walter had guts. He was willing to be politically incorrect. He said, you can accuse me of being mean-spirited, insensitive, and uncaring. Uh, I'm going to you know, speak the truth as I see it and so often I
3: think he did understand what was true and what was false. Teachingfreedom.org Check out the website. Roger Reem, President of the Fund for American Studies. Roger, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan.
0: Show at DanProffShow.com.
3: Welcome back to the show. We close out today with something reminiscent of a Christmas story. Ralphie and his Red Ryder BB gun. He has Santa for it. Santa pushes him down. Shoe to the forehead. Down the slide after saying, "You shoot your eye out. Well, this uh, real world story of life-imitating art, much less campy. In fact, it's rather infuriating. And, of course, it happened in Illinois, the land of the bad example. It's got to be somewhere. It might as well be in Norridge, which is a near-suburb of Chicago, a Harlem Irving Plaza there. And uh, the uh, boy's mom has been identified, Sabella DiCarlo. The uh, boy asked Santa, and this is, you know, sort of a, a tougher working Family neighborhood, so I'm surprised that uh, Santa got away with this. But uh, the boy wants a Nerf gun. Little boy wants a Nerf gun. And this is how that goes.
8: What do you want for Christmas?
0: Um, You don't know.
3: What? No, no guns. Nerf guns. No, not even a nerve gun. No, if, you, you, if your dad wants to get it for you, that's fine, but I can't bring
8: it to you. But what else would you like? Lots of other toys. There's Legos, there's bicycles, oh my God, I'm a there's cars and trucks. What do you think?
3: What do you think? It's okay if your dad.
8: Don't
3: cry. And so the kid starts crying and then his mom comforts him and and you know he starts crying she uh said because you know, i there's obviously this has drawn a lot of reaction on social media unsurprisingly what uh other people suggested they would have done to that santa they would have shown him where he could holster a nerf gun i'll tell you that but here was her response She said it was supposed to be magical, but instead I had to watch my sweet little boy fight back tears because Santa told him no because of his own personal beliefs. I had to think fast and explain to him, her son, that this Santa was just a helper and not the real guy. I just wanted to console my baby and get him out of there. Flipping out on Santa would have only made it worse, probably, but it would have been cathartic. Uh, His elfie is going to bring him a Nerf gun directly from the North Pole from the real Santa tonight, she said in response on Facebook to uh, people – calling for santa to be put on the naughty list or to be yes buried in the snow somewhere anyway i mean just seriously the, 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 another classic example of my political beliefs have to be have to infuse everything you can't even get away with doing the pro forma exercise of bringing your kid to santa asking for a nerf gun which is completely innocuous obviously this needs to even be explained and not get you know basically some gun control goof who unsurprisingly has to be a storefront Santa to uh, to shame your kid and make him cry. That's where we're at. Uh, but I know it's Joe Biden is going to make it all better because he's going to unify the country and all the storefront Santas and all the kids of America will live happily ever after. That's the story. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. This
5: is the Dan Proft Show.